Poetry plays a very strong and central role in Arab society going back centuries. I mean, even prior to Islam, poetry had a very central role in expression. Arabs for a very long time have looked to poetry as a distinguishing feature of their cultural production, a source of cultural pride. The Nahda also emphasized poetry as an expression of Arab cultural identity and cultural pride. There is a kind of moment of recognition that I see as having happened right around or immediately after the 67 war, where there's this recognition of, wow, these Palestinians in Israel, whom we've written off for so long, are actually very much attuned to and a part of the Palestinian struggle for freedom and justice, and we need to pay closer attention to that. Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan, and I'll be your host. Join me and find Joy in Conversation because, well, it's a mitzvah. What is a border? I don't ask this question in some vague philosophical sense. Perhaps it's a truism that borders aren't real, that they're artificially drawn lines in the sand, that they're human constructs subject to change and lacking in permanency. That may be true. Lines in the sand may be artificial, and the winds of time may blow them away. We can take solace in thinking about borders this way, but we may also experience anger and frustration when we think of borders and how they aren't always the most natural or intuitive ways of demarcating between peoples, between places. Borders have consequences. They have implications. And borders intersect with place, time, and people. For place, a border may separate. It doesn't stitch or weave together. A border divides. For time, a border can create separate universes where each passing day, the worlds within them grow apart. For people, a border can test the strength of cohesion, of unity, especially when a community that sees itself as one people, as one nation, finds itself on either side of a border. What does that line in the sand, that separation in time and space, actually mean for a community? And what happens when a community living on one side of a border seems to live in the shadows, eclipsed, and seemingly unknown and unseen by their counterparts, just on the other side of that line, that line in the sand? How do these people, these people who live in the shadows, make themselves known and communicate to the world. Culture can communicate identity. It can also be a way to communicate needs and aspirations for the longings of a people. It can take that border, that thing that divides us, and it can make it more porous, more fluid, allowing for flow and exchange. Such creativity and expression, well, that can be a balm offering healing and hope. In this way, the arts can be a bridge, using intellect and emotion to forge pathways towards understanding. 
will focus on Palestinians within the state of Israel, those with Israeli citizenship. This community had long lived in such a way where they were unseen, unheard, and misunderstood on many levels, even by their Palestinian counterparts living outside of the state of Israel and themselves experiencing their own universe of displacement with many living as refugees. We'll focus on intellectual history and literary output, ways of formulating identity and expressing the experiences of being strangers in their own homeland. We're joined by Maha Nassar. Maha will share what it means to her to be Palestinian, to deal with borders and separation, to know of the myths and misconceptions that Palestinians have had to endure. We'll also focus on the intellectual history and literary productions of Palestinians who found themselves residing in the state of Israel after 1948. Let's listen and learn about what borders mean for identity and expression, for community and continuity, for communication and separation. Yell, let's learn together. My name is Maha Nassar. I'm an associate professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona. And my research interests are on, the, on Palestinian history, Arab history, and of course, its entwinement with Israeli history. I'm also a Palestinian American. I am the daughter of two Palestinian refugees who were survivors of the Nakba in 1948. One thing that's particular, I think, to my mother's family is a love of swimming and a love of the sea. We all learned to swim early on. I mean, it was in, you know, high school gymnasium pools outside of Chicago. But my mom loves to swim. She's in her 70s, and they have a pool in their home, and she still swims every day. And as I learned more, I learned that my grandmother also loved to swim. And my, my whole family in Jaffa, before 1948, their home was very close to the beach. And they would go swimming. And the love of the Mediterranean in particular, the sort of warm water, is something that I take with me. And I think also something from Palestine that I take with me. So my father's family, my father was born in a village in the south of Jaffa, um, north of Gaza, called Barbara. Uh, it was destroyed in 1948, and they were exiled to Gaza, to the Gaza Strip. And from him, I take a sense of being Palestinian. Like, I remember as a child him telling me that we are Palestinian and what it means to be Palestinian. When I was in fourth grade in public elementary school outside of Chicago, we had a heritage unit and we had to, you know, learn about our heritage and where we came from. And we were all supposed to go home and ask our parents where we're from. And then come to school, tell the teacher, and they were going to put pins on a map. So I, I already knew. I didn't have to go home. Like, I remembered already knowing in fourth grade that I was Palestinian. And then I remember the next day telling the teacher, and they're not able to find Palestine on the map. And they, they kind of know it's Israel. And so they're like, well, we're just going to put the pin in Israel. And, you know, I'm in fourth grade. I was an introvert. I didn't say anything. But I remember thinking that's not right. There's something that's not right about them. But that unit and that memory is really seared in me in terms of to have your very core existence be denied by people around you. 
And so that too, I think, shaped how I approach Palestinian history and particularly my interest in pulling out or bringing out the various textures of Palestinian culture and society. Maha has an intimate knowledge of Palestine because of her identity and heritage. She has a scholarly understanding as well. How does this intimate knowledge map onto some of the popular and mainstream images of Palestinians that circulate in American culture and representations? One of the things that I realized really quickly growing up here in the U.S. is that the way that Palestinians are talked about in popular media is very, very, very different from what I experienced growing up. So those flattened depictions of Palestinians as compared to the Palestinians I saw in my life and in my family and society uh, was something that I became very fascinated with from a young age. So on the one hand, you have Palestinians who are being depicted as you know, as victims of Israeli oppression. On the other hand, you have Palestinians being described as terrorists, as non-entities, sort of not real people. But there was nothing in any of that that showed Palestinians outside of the context of conflict. So I know Palestinians as having amazing food, awesome weddings, cool music, beautiful clothing, very subtle differences in dialect depending on where in Palestine one is from, familial connections and, and the ways in which Palestinians are able to pinpoint your exact geographic location, even if you were born and raised in the U.S. None of that comes through when Palestinians are only on the nightly news in the context of conflict. So Maha studies a particular subset of Palestinians, those who reside within the boundaries of the state of Israel, Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, who are sometimes referred to as Arab Israelis. This isn't her family's story. This is the story of a group that's often less seen and less understood than those Palestinians in the West Bank or Gaza, or even those Palestinians in Chicago. So how did she come to focus on this group of Palestinians, coming to understand the literary and intellectual history of this particular community? Growing up in the Chicago area, in this large Palestinian-American community, but also having Palestinian relatives who were scattered all over the world, I thought I knew a thing or two about Palestinians. I thought I knew a lot about Palestinians in the diaspora, about Palestinians in the West Bank, which is where a lot of the Palestinian-American community in Chicago is from, Palestinians in Gaza, which is where a lot of my father's family is. So I thought I had a pretty good handle on things. And then while I was in graduate school, I knew that I wanted to study Palestinian history, but I was still kind of thinking about which particular group I was interested in. And it was interestingly, perhaps ironically, while I was studying Hebrew in graduate school, we had an assignment where I had to translate a Hebrew essay from a Palestinian novelist in Israel named Anton Shamas who was writing about what would happen to the Palestinian citizens of Israel the day after or the morning after a Palestinian state is declared. And as I was struggling through the translation, a a really searing image came to me, and I came to realize how little I actually knew about this particular group of Palestinians. 
and I was hooked. I became uh, sort of immediately interested. And then the more I dug, the more fascinated I became, in part because a lot of the Palestinian poets, and I had been an English major in college, so I was interested in literature. A lot of the Palestinian poets that I understood to be Palestinian poets, people like Mahmoud Darwish and Samishin Qasim, Tawfiq Zayad, were actually citizens of Israel. Then that sort of got me going on a whole other line of inquiry. So I became really fascinated in my dissertation with how Palestinian intellectuals and literatures, poets and uh, essayists and others, used Arabic literature to express their identity as Palestinians in the state of Israel. We're going to focus a lot on intellectual history, the creative output, and dissenting expressions of Palestinians within the state of Israel. But it would be wrong to start our exploration of intellectual history here. It's not as though Arab and Palestinian literary currents started after 1948. We first need to go back to the 19th century. This will help us understand some big ideas like nationalism literary movements, and cultural renewal. This history helps us avoid looking at Palestinians in Israel and their literary productions in a cultural or political vacuum. There's so much continuity and rupture to be explored here. So starting with the 19th century movement in the Middle East, the Nahda, or the Arab Renaissance, will help us understand some of what Maha studies, like the poetry of Palestinians in Israel. Poetry takes on so much significance, but we need to move back in time to understand why that is. Before we go ahead and focus on 1948 and its aftermath. Single most important intellectual current in Palestine and the broader Arab world in the late 19th and early 20th century was an Arab cultural movement known as the Nahda. Nahda, Arabic word that means uh, renaissance. And it was a movement within the entirety, really, at least of the Eastern Arab world, Egypt and the Levant in particular, that was keen to revive, revitalize Arabic literature, both poetry and prose, and was also very keen on spreading Arab thought, intellectual thought and traditions to broader audiences. So this is also around the time we start to see the emergence of newspapers throughout the Arab world. This is a time when literacy rates were fairly low. So there was also an emphasis on improving literacy. So a lot of journalists were also poets, were also founders of schools and principals of schools. So there was a strong element uh, and a strong belief that the Arabic language, and a kind of a close attention that's paid to the nuances and richness of the Arabic language, not just any kind of Arabic language, but kind of engagement with literary forms of the Arabic language, coupled with the production and spread of ideas, both political as well as cultural, were necessary for a renewal and revival of Arab society. And this is also a time, the late 19th and early 20th century, is when we start to get the beginnings of Arab nationalism. Nationalism here being the idea that Arabs form a people, form a nation, 
and that they should rule over their own affairs and not be subjected to Ottoman or Turkish rule. So all these ideas really are percolating in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and they continue to develop after World War One, And they take on a different nuance because after World War One, the former Ottoman lands are divided up by European uh, powers, particularly Britain and France. And so now there's an anti-colonial layer on top of that Arab revival that informs a lot of the political activism of the 1920s and 30s and 40s. So that by the time you have the 1948 war, in which over half of the Palestinian population was expelled or fled from their homes, there was already by that time a strong sense of anti-colonial expression, a strong sense of national identity, and a belief that Palestinians, as well as Syrians and Lebanese and Egyptians and others, should be ruling their own affairs. Meha talked about Arab nationalism. This, on some levels, is a pan-Arab idea that all Arab people belong to one national community. But what does that mean for Palestinian identity and Palestinian national aspirations? Is there a tension here? Are these different forms of identity and sovereign yearning competing or conflicting with each other? Or are they complementing and completing each other? The thing to know about Palestinians and Syrians and really people from that entire region is that their sense of identity is layered. Some talk about it in terms of concentric circles. I like to think of it more in terms of layers. And so there are layers of identity that are very, very, very local. So knowing, for example, if I meet another Palestinian anywhere else in the world, even though I was born and raised in the U.S., they find out I'm Palestinian, they're going to want to know where in Palestine am I from, meaning where were my parents born, where were my grandparents born. And I would ask them the same. I would want to know the same. Because we want to place, uh, kind of geographically, map geographically, the specific locales that we're attached to. So there's a very specific localized form of identity. And that's true if you ask Lebanese, if you ask Syrians, etc. They'll do the same thing. So that's one layer. Then there's a second layer that emerges in the aftermath of World War I with the divvying up of those lands into the mandates of Palestine, the mandate of Syria, the mandate of Lebanon, etc. And so that is the struggle for independence within those geographically bounded. And then there's the largest uh, sort of layer on top of that, which is that kind of pan-Arab layer, the idea that all Arabs together form a single nation. And that emerged as part of the Nahda, and it was quite strong during and immediately after World War One. This history helps us understand the political and cultural context in which Palestinians and Israel articulated their identities, their sovereign aspirations, and their literary and intellectual movements after 1948. So let's actually pause and focus on 1948, because this is a moment of transformation. For Jews around the world, and for those who before 1948 were living in Palestine, this is seen as a year of liberation. 
But including the Palestinian narrative of these events, the events of 1948, well, that means weighing one story of triumph with another of tragedy. So how is it that Palestinians have formulated an understanding of these events in the year 1948? So Nakba is an Arabic word that literally translates as catastrophe. And it refers to the events starting in late 1947 and continuing through mid-1949, but generally around the year 1948. So 1948 is often called the year of the Nakba. And that refers to the processes by which, as I said, over half of the Palestinian Arab population either fled or were expelled from their homes and not allowed to return. And also, not just the removal of Palestinians from their homeland, but also the removal of the homeland from Palestinians. In other words, even those Palestinians who managed to stay in or return to their homes in what became the state of Israel, no longer had a Palestine to call their own. It was now called the state of Israel. The signs were all changed from Arabic to Hebrew. Currency changed. Everything changed quite dramatically. And so the consequences then mean different things for different Palestinians. Collectively, it's the loss of Palestine in 1948, the loss of Palestine as a homeland for the Palestinian Arab people. The specific manifestations, though, differ among different Palestinians. For those who became refugees, it meant a legacy. It means still for many, for millions of Palestinians. It means a legacy of statelessness, of living in a kind of perpetual limbo, waiting to return, wanting to return, but unable to do so. For Palestinians inside the West Bank, the Nakba meant that they now became under, came under Jordanian control. And Jordan, the Jordanian authorities and government, did their own kind of erasure, trying to convince Palestinians in the West Bank that they were really Jordanian and not Palestinian. The Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, the Nakba meant being crowded into and crammed into uh, refugee camps. About 70% of the Palestinian population in Gaza were refugees that, that were shoved into Gaza as a result of the 48 war. The refugee-ness and the deprivations that come with being a refugee were very acutely felt. And then for Palestinians who were, again, inside Israel, the Nakba and the consequences had echoes of this. So a lot of the Palestinians who ended up being in Israel were themselves internally displaced refugees or internally displaced people. They were often referred to kind of euphemistically by the Israeli authorities as present absentees. And that phrase had legal consequences because by declaring them to be absentees, their land could be confiscated by the state. Meha explains how the Nakba had different consequences, depending on whether Palestinians fled or were forced to go to Jordan or Lebanon, for example, versus those who remained within what would become the boundaries of the state of Israel. Let's now focus our attention on this community, the community of those who continued to remain within those boundaries 
let's focus on the consequences of the Nakba for this community and the literary and intellectual currents that would emerge from within it and which would eventually be exported to the rest of the Arab world. Let's also focus on the time and the effort and the perseverance that it would take to get these literary and intellectual currents outside of the state of Israel and into the hands and minds and hearts of Palestinians and other people living across the world. So early on, Palestinian citizens of Israel recognized that the Nakba for them also meant that they were unequal citizens in a state that claimed them as part of a, a vibrant democracy. So from 1948 to 1966, Palestinian citizens of Israel were placed under Israeli martial law, or military government. In the early years of the state, what that meant was that they were subjected to a kind of path system or permit system. They needed to go to their local military governor and request a pass to be able to go from home to school or from home to work or to travel or to, you know, anything they wanted to do. They were at the mercy of the Israeli military governor. Israel identifies as a democracy. Many of the state's critics, however, refer to it as a form of settler colonialism. What can studying the history of Palestinians within the state of Israel teach us about the tensions between these competing visions? Israel had elements of liberalism, so Palestinians could vote, for example, and run for office and and so forth. But it had elements of settler colonial state as well, in that the Israeli state very early on wanted to minimize the areas where Palestinian citizens resided. So they would declare, for example, certain Palestinian lands or villages to be closed military zones. And that meant that Palestinians couldn't access, for example, their farmland because it was now, there was uh, barbed wire around it, closed military zones, can't enter. And then after a few years, the military governor would go to the courts and say, this land hasn't been farmed, hasn't been used, it's absent property, so we want to now take it for the state. And the courts would say, yeah, it hasn't been used. And then Palestinians would go and say, well, we couldn't use it because it was a closed military zone. So the way that it worked, the way that settler colonialism worked for Palestinian citizens of Israel was through bureaucracy. It wasn't through the kind of overt, you know, um, like when we think about South Africa and we think about whites and colors and the signs that said, you go here, you go there. Or the Jim Crow South, you know, white water fountains and, and colored water fountains. You don't have that kind of explicitly racialized kinds of segregation, but rather it was done through bureaucracy and it was done without explicit expression or explicit uh, enunciation of ethnicity or, or, uh, or national identity or race, for lack of a better word. But it was done in, in by formulating laws and bureaucratic mechanisms that inherently placed Palestinians at a disadvantage. Within this context, intellectuals emerged and produced literature that has shaped the world's understanding of who Palestinians are as a people and how their individual and collective experiences have been shaped by displacement, disempowerment, and longing. Mahmoud Darwish is one such example of a Palestinian intellectual. So who was Darwish? 
And what was his story as a Palestinian who resided within the state of Israel? Mahmoud Darwish was born in 1941, early 40s, in the north of Palestine. His family, during the 1948 war, they become refugees. They flee to Lebanon. But that's, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees now in Lebanon. And so they decide to sneak back into what is now Israel. They sneak back over the border. But they don't have documentation. They are undocumented in their own homeland. And so for many years, Mahmoud Darwish lived as an undocumented person in his homeland. And later interviews, he talks about how his school teacher or the school principal had to hide him in a closet in the principal's office whenever the inspector from the Ministry of Education came because if the minister, if the, if the supervisor or the superintendent sees that Mahmoud Darwish is here and he doesn't have proper papers, he'll be expelled with his whole family. So Darwish talks about being the seven-year-old boy hiding in a closet, afraid to be discovered, but also knowing that he's in his own homeland. And so that juxtaposition of being a stranger in your own homeland is something that becomes very searing for Darwish himself. Then when he's 12 or 13, his poetic gift starts to be discovered and he's asked to recite a poem at a school function. And he says some kind of poem, uh, it's addressed to a Jewish friend of his, kind of hypothetical Jewish friend. And he doesn't remember the exact words because he's telling the story later in an interview, but it's something like, you can go out and play and I can't and you have this and I don't, but why can't we be friends? And so then he's called into the office of the ministry of the uh, military government. And the military governor threatens this 12-year-old boy that they will strip his father of his work permit. His father works in a quarry. If he ever does something insightful like this again, if he ever says something that's, that's deemed as subversive. You can imagine a 12, 13-year-old boy like not really understanding what happened. So during his high school years, he retreats into romantic poetry. But then he also, here's the other part of the story that I want to tell. He also starts to witness in the mid to late 1950s the rise of poetry festivals inside Israel. And so poetry festivals is the side door through which Palestinian intellectuals can express their views in ways that sidestep a little bit the, the draconian policies of the state. And it also ties into the Nahda because it's a revival or it's a, you know, building on Arabic literary tradition. It's also expressing Arab national identity or Arab cultural pride, perhaps. Maybe not explicitly national identity. Uh, there are subtle and sometimes not so subtle anti-colonial messages about people of the world uniting, Arabs uniting, workers of the world uniting, uh, and standing up against tyranny. So they would use coded language to speak up against the state. They wouldn't say, you know, down with Israel. They'd say down with tyranny, for example. So, so poetry festivals become both a mode of cultural expression, a mode of cultural pride, as well as a vehicle for oppositional political expression. Darwish was not alone in writing poetry, poetry that captured the realities of life for Palestinians in Israel. But how expansive was this audience? Who was hearing these words recited? Was this a way to reconnect Palestinians who found themselves on opposite sides of a political boundary? 
there wasn't really any awareness among Palestinians in, in these refugee camps or in exile about what was happening um, on the intellectual or cultural scene among Palestinians in Israel. And that starts to change around 1965, 64, 65, 66. Palestinian poems, especially by this younger generation of poets like Mahmoud Darwish and Samih al-Qasim, there are poems which had been published inside Israel in Arabic publications. They surreptitiously find their way on, into Lebanese territory. These poems make their way into Lebanon, and they get into the hands of a very famous Palestinian novelist and literary critic by the name of Hassan Kanafani. based in Beirut at this time, and he gets a hold of these poems and is, is, is really taken with them, is fascinated by them, and is particularly impressed with the fact that they are written by Palestinians in Israel. These are the same Palestinians who have been described by Israel as a content Arab-Israeli minority in a vibrant democracy who have no real connection to the Palestinian people. So that was the running assumption among most people, among most Palestinians and most Arabs, until the mid-1960s. So Hassan Kinefani publishes some of these poems with an essay in Al-Adab, which is a very wide circulating literary journal published um, in Beirut, and that's in 1966. And around that time, there are also uh, radio stations that are uh, dedicated to kind of raising awareness about the Palestinian cause. So they start to read some of these poems on air as well, which further extend their reach. But it really wasn't until after the 1967 war when Palestinians in refugee camps, Palestinians in exile, and the broader Arab world really start to pay attention to this intellectual production that's happening inside Israel. 1967 meant Palestinians who were separated for nearly two decades could encounter each other once again. So what were some of the assumptions held by Palestinians in the West Bank and elsewhere of their counterparts, their counterparts who had just spent 20 years living within the state of Israel at this time in 1967, when they were finally reunited? There were sort of two images that Arabs had of the Palestinians in Israel. One sort of more negative image that they were sellouts, they, that they sold out their Palestinian identity, their Palestinian cause, assimilated into Israel, became Israeli, and just turned their back on their you know, fellow Palestinians who were still languishing in refugee camps and, and longing to return. That's the sort of worst-case depiction. And then there's a, a better-case depiction, which is still not great, which is that these Palestinians in Israel are so beat down by the state. They're so oppressed. Their, their existence is so suffocating that they are just passive victims, that they can't really say or do anything to defend themselves. The poetry of Palestinians in Israel would become incredibly influential among Palestinians across the world. So what was it about this creative output from this particular community that had such resonance? especially considering some of the assumptions about this community as being passive victims or sellouts. One of the reasons why the poetry of the Palestinians in Israel 
takes off and, and becomes so popular so quickly is that, you know, during the mid-1960s and then certainly in the later 1960s, there had been by that point nearly two decades of Palestinians living under Israeli rule, grown, growing up under Israeli rule, and not feeling defeated, frankly. And so there's a, there's a, a tone of defiance in their poetry that one sees both in the kind of mid-1960s as well as in their poetry that comes immediately after 1967. And that's very different from the kind of poetry that was being produced by Palestinians in exile. Prior to 67, a lot of the poetry had a very kind of sad, longing, mournful tone to it but not really a fighting tone, not really a defiant tone. And then post-67, there was such a shock that the Arab countries had lost to Israel that, again, there was this more mournful kind of defeatist attitude. We get beaten down and all of these things happen to us and still I rise. That's kind of the message of a lot of this poetry, and it really resonates with a lot of Palestinians, particularly those who, and, and it resonates with Palestinians and with Arabs, especially because they had been told for two decades these Palestinians in Israel are Arab Israeli, they're not really Palestinian, they've turned their back on the cause, or they've been beat down, or what have Given the severe restrictions and censorship and political repression that Palestinians in Israel face in terms of censorship of their newspapers, censorship of their other forms of writing, uh, poetry, and especially poetry that was uh, recited orally, that was done at a poetry festival, for example, where the lines are short and easily memorizable, played two roles, at least. One role is that it had an immediacy to it that brought people together, that brought the listeners together. And they would remember that poem because the lines tended to be short, tended to be uh, with a direct message. So they would remember those lines of poetry and recite them back to one another. And so it was a form of community building. That's one role. A second role is that because poetry had more license, so to speak, they were able to evade some of that censorship and repression. It helped Palestinian citizens of Israel who were otherwise disconnected and isolated from the Arab world it helped them connect to the larger Arab world. The kind of poetry that was being recited was a kind that had a lot of resonance and popularity in the Arab world at this time. It was known as free verse poetry. It was also known as platform poetry. So these are things that are happening in Iraq, in Egypt, in Syria, in Lebanon. So the, the, the act itself of presenting a poem on stage or on a platform that has a political message, albeit coded, that has very simple direct lines that connects with your audience and then the audience connects with one another, had a really important political role as well as a cultural role. Poetry and cultural productions may seem like the sorts of expressions that are reserved for elite members of a society. Was this the case with Palestinian poets, particularly those who were writing from within the state of Israel? Were they of a political or social elite? The Palestinians who end up remaining in Israel are primarily uh, rural, 
primarily in the north, disconnected to any major cities. There's a relatively low literacy rate among them at that time. And so the organic intellectuals that emerge out of this society, some of the older ones, like Amin Habibi and Amir Tuma, come from what we might call the middle class. Um, and the younger generation, like Mahmoud Darwish, came from villages, uh, rural populations. Darwish himself, as I said, was, was undocumented for many years. So they are the uh, opposite of the coastal elite in many ways, which is why I use the term organic intellectual to, uh, to refer to them. Poetry is one form of artistic and political expression. But what about more direct involvement in politics? What other forms of political engagement have Palestinians within the state of Israel had at their disposal? The Israeli Communist Party was one vehicle through which people could organize because it was recognized as legal by the state. Yeah, it was anti-Zionist, but it was non-Zionist. And so Palestinian activists, uh, many of them saw that as a political, as a vehicle for expressing criticism of the state. Very briefly in the late 50s and early 1960s, an Arab nationalist movement called Al-Ard, which means the land, the Ard movement emerged that was very popular for a lot of Palestinians who had strong pan-Arab nationalist and you know, pro-Nazarist feelings. That was quashed by the state fairly quickly. And then the other avenue would be through... I think I would say the politics of refusal, of not paying obeisance to the state, of not attending Israeli Independence Day festivals, of not not doing the things that Israeli authorities were so anxious to have Palestinians do to, quote-unquote, prove their loyalty to the state. It's been over 70 years since the state of Israel was established. So far, we focused mostly on the 19th century and the early and mid-20th century, emphasizing the period between 1948 and 1967. But if we're to look past 1967, if we're to look into the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the 21st century, what are some of the broad developments for Palestinians within Israel in the latter half of the 20th century and into the 21st century? So gradually, over the decades after 1967, there are some economic and political spaces that open up for Palestinian citizens of Israel within within the state. There are more opportunities for engagement and involvement. So those are some of the changes. But in terms of the continuities, a lot of the bureaucratic mechanisms that aim to restrict and confine Palestinian citizens of Israel remain in place to this day. They sometimes have different iterations or, or amendments or what have you, but they're still largely in place. The other thing that I think is still a continuity is this kind of carrot and stick, almost schizophrenic approach that the Israeli government has towards particularly Palestinian intellectuals in Israel, wanting to bring them on board and try to get them to be more kind of supportive of the state. 
but then also punishing those who are deemed to have gone too far. For people who have been unseen or unheard, the arts are one way in which they can demand that they be known on their terms and understood from their own experiences. Palestinians within the state of Israel and the poetry they've produced has been one way to merge time and place by finding a home in an artistic mode that goes back centuries and which has been part of the social fabric of Palestinian society. In that way, poetry can communicate across the very things that separate. It can bind and make whole that which has been fractured. This is one story of what it means to be Palestinian. This is one way that Palestinians have coped and pined and demonstrated resilience and resistance. It's a testament to the power of words, whether they're spoken, written, recited, or repeated. It's a testament to the power of words and what they can do and why voices need to be heard in order to restore and mend all that has been fractured. So it begs the question, who else is speaking but yet to be heard? Let's find out together. A special thanks to Meha Nassar. It was a treat talking to you. Meha is the author of Brothers Apart, Palestinian Citizens of Israel and the Arab World, published by Stanford University Press. Thanks as always to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering Joy in Conversation. To learn more about Nico's work, visit nicoriversrecording.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song, which was not heard in today's episode. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And to learn more about his music, visit alechudson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazaro. This episode featured a version of Adnan Oda's song, Yama Mawil Alhawa performed by Maria Trogolo on the canoe. We also had the pleasure of including the music of Basil Zayed throughout this episode. Basil is a singer, composer, and oud master. To learn more about his music, visit basilzayed.com. Our episodes feature music by the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. The group is no longer active, but their music's on Spotify and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available to creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy in Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice and visiting our website, joyandconversationpodcast.com. We'll see you next time.